I wouldn't say that Galapagos is not for, you know, travelers coming from China, but you have to understand, you know, the place that you're going to and, and, and the travel agents or the companies need to really educate the people as to what you can and cannot do. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. My guest today is very far away and um, and he will be talking to us about a place that I would love to go. I've never managed and um, I think maybe this would be the opportunity now to find out more about it and finally go. He is the marketing manager, director of marketing of Quasar Expeditions. He is a travel and hospitality executive and he's a guide. I also read because I'm a guide and I always notice when somebody is a guide. And this is Fernando Diaz. Welcome to Most Memorable Journeys. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. So you are sitting in uh, Santiago at the moment, or you live in Santiago, right? Yes. I moved down here about 12 years ago. Um, I have a family here, married to a beautiful Chilean woman, and I have three kids, all Chilean. But my family all lives back home where I was basically born and raised in Ecuador. Um, in the Galapagos Islands. So I lived there for most of my childhood and um, a good part of my adult life. And then I went to study. I did my university education in the United States, then came back to Ecuador, spent a few years there working in the family business and in Quasar Expeditions. It's a family travel business. And then I moved to Chile again to do travel. Uh, I basically opened the, our Patagonia program here, but our bread and butter and what we've done for 37 years is Galapagos. You know, that is our expertise. That's amazing. What I know about Galapagos, and I actually, I used to uh, work for a company called Cuoni, which is a Swiss uh, tour operator. And I think if I remember well, one of my friends, my very good friend, Ruth, has been to Galapagos. What I know, that's really all I know, is that it's very unique. There is very, it, it, it's it's quite expensive to get there because I, I think they also want to keep it a little bit under control. Am I right? It's not, you don't want mass tourism. Yes. So Ecuador is a third world country and in third world countries, many things um, are not managed properly. You you said you're from Switzerland, so it's the complete opposite. <laughs> you know, public transportation is never on time in Ecuador, but if there is something that we as Ecuadorians are extremely proud of is the way the Galapagos National Park has managed the archipelago and, you know, the reserve from its establishment in the late 50s. They have always protected the Galapagos in a way that really allows you to see wildlife today, the way wildlife probably once was everywhere in the world. So it's it's strange because, you know, people refer to wildlife in the Galapagos as being completely different and, and strange from anywhere else in the world. But if you think about it, before we scared away the animals because we invaded their habitat or we started hunting them or they were all like they are in the Galapagos, entirely unafraid of humans. Um, there is a rule in the Galapagos National Park that you cannot touch any of the wildlife. But in Galapagos, they are so unafraid of you that you could pick up the birds, pet the sea lions, touch the turtle, the turtles, you know, get on top of the tortoises. They're just 
unafraid. And for a period of time, when the Galapagos were a popular stopping point for pirates, buccaneers, and whalers, they did take advantage of this. And this is why a lot of the tortoise species, the giant tortoise species in many islands were became extinct because they were used for food. Um, but yes, the highlight, Elizabeth, as you said, is the wildlife. It is, to me, the best place on earth for humans to safely approach the wildlife and the wildlife to approach you. So we we call it like an African safari, except none of the animals really see you as their dinner. <laughs> that is, in summary, what the Galapagos because is about. Because they're unafraid, because they have not been hunted or bothered by humans. Now, I have studied you. I have prepared for this podcast episode, but I haven't studied Galapagos. I have to be honest with you. How big is, because you said that you were born there. Are there villages or towns in Galapagos? There are, yes. There are four inhabited towns in, in four islands, in the island of San Cristobal, Santa Cruz, in the island of Isabella, and then in the island of Floriana. Um, now, the, the largest one is Santa Cruz, uh, Puerto Ayora, which only has a population of about 20,000. Only about 30,000 people live in all of the Galapagos archipelago. Um, so, you know, still, that's a very low number of people for the size of archipelago. And you have to consider that only 3% of the Galapagos is outside of the national park where people can actually live and establish towns. Um, the rest, 97%, is pristine national park that can only be visited at certain times of day. Um, no construction, nothing. It's just the land of the animals. You know, their habitat remains untouched. And we can only visit them um, at certain times of day following these set itineraries from the Galapagos National Park. So yes, there are places, you know, that are inhabited. Still, it's very basic living. The islands don't really have potable water. It's a, a mixture of brackish water, which is salt water combined with fresh water. Um, electricity is powered by, you know, generators that are running on fuel. There are big projects, you know, to work with uh, solar energy and wind turbines and things like that, but it still a, represents a very small percentage. So very basic living, but um, yes, there are several people living there today. Were your parents born there? No, they were born in mainland Ecuador, but it was, you know, my mother in 1969. When she was just 16 years old, her biology professor told her about a magical place called Galapagos that was part of her own country. And she said it absolutely captivated her mind. Back then, there must have been only a couple of hundred people living in the islands. And there was a old Navy cargo ship that was being used, sorry, an old Navy battleship that was refit as a cargo vessel that would take um, supplies from the mainland to the Galapagos about every 15 days or so. So their professor got them, you know, seats on that uh, boat and together with a group of friends, just at 16 years old, she tells me how difficult it was to convince her parents, you know, to let a 16 year old girl Imagine. venture yeah, into the wilds of the Galapagos. But they went on this Navy ship and we have their photos of, of this trip. And Back then, you know, the Galapagos National Park had recently been established, but the guides that you see today, the trails, that was non-existent. It had just been declared a park, and that was about it. They were figuring out how to handle this. So the Navy ship would, you know, as they would 
supply the towns with provisions, they would drop them off at a random spot in one of the islands and said, we'll be back here at 5 p.m. Please be back. Here's a bag of oranges. Here's some water. Here's some sandwiches. And they were basically free to roam around the Galapagos. As Charles Darwin once did, you know, centuries before. And what she saw there and the wildlife, the pristine, untouched nature of the the things she saw there just stuck with her for forever. And, and, you know, after she came back from that trip, just thought of ways that she could make Galapagos a permanent part of her life. And it wasn't until she met my father um, about 10 years later, uh, he was an entrepreneur, really, he, he was in the construction and vehicle dealership business, nothing to do with Galapagos, but they went out to the islands. Uh, he also fell in love with the islands and they started Quasar, the first upscale cruise company in the Galapagos uh, to start in 1986. There was one other company that still exists today, uh, but they ran a, a bigger boat with um, you know basic accommodations, no air conditioning, not private facilities. And that's how basically Quasar started. And that's how we ended up in the Galapagos. What an amazing story. I mean, what an amazing woman who had yeah. this, you know, uh, going there at 16 and and probably a little stubborn because she wouldn't let it go until she got uh, her husband to start it. That's fantastic. So Quasar is one of the established uh, companies in the Galapagos Islands. What um, what kind of, have you ever had people on your tours or on your cruises that shouldn't have been there? Yes, definitely. <laughs> and it, it all has to do with the expectations that I said and the reason why people go. We talked about, you know, one of your, your sons who's studying in China. We had a group come from China and culturally there are just a lot of differences, right? And the way wildlife is treated in Galapagos, at least for this group of, you know, Chinese tourists that came, they were completely oblivious of the fact that nature could be protected in such a way. So they, they wanted to touch all the animals. Um, it was, it was very challenging. And so I wouldn't say that Galapagos is not for, you know, travelers coming from China, but you have to understand, you know, the place that you're going to and, 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 the travel agents or the companies need to really educate the people as to what you can and cannot do. Some people also think, you know, the Galapagos is extremely strict uh, when it comes to what, like, for example, you can't eat anything on the islands, not even like chocolate, you know, bar of chocolate. You are only allowed to drink water. But the reason the animals uh, are not begging for food when you go there is because nobody has ever fed the animals and that nature goes has its own course and we're just visitors that they know um don't present any harm and this is where this magical interaction happens where you know there could be two pairs of iguanas fighting and they'll you know knock against you because you're just you know a, a visitor there they they have no reason to fear you and that is what makes you know the island so spectacular and that's what really captivated my mouse mind you know so many years ago what else makes galapagos so unique i mean what 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 is what animal is the most um fascinating for you on the uh, on galapagos i would say probably three one that i've only seen once in my life um, because it lives in an island very far north and then two that are very commonly seen so the first are um the marine iguanas so 
these marine iguanas, their ancestors, is the regular green iguana that you find in South America, that you find in the coast of Ecuador. Uh, most likely it floated to the Galapagos on logs. You know, maybe there was a flood and the iguana got, um, you know, taken out to sea on a log and they floated away and ended up in the Galapagos. And because the Galapagos are volcanic islands, there's very little vegetation, um, constant, you know, volcanic eruptions. So whatever vegetation is there can be wiped out, you know, from one day to the next. So they had to learn to feed on, on sea algae. And the thing is, you know, when the algae was short in supply or was dried up at the shores, it would, they would need to, um, find it deeper in the water. So they had to learn to swim and dive like fish to survive. So now you have these reptiles that change in color. They change in color to being completely black because as, you know, reptiles that are cold blooded, um, the black color favors their evolutionary survival, right? If they had to go in the water, which were, you know, maybe 18, 17, 20 degrees, their blood would get so cold that the animals might die. So they needed to be the darker ones survive longer because they would once out of the water, get warmer with the sun. And so now these iguanas are all black. Their, their tails got flatter because the tails were, are now used for propulsion. Their nails got long because they, they now cling onto the rocks, right? And they feed on sea algae. But because they consume the sea algae that's full, full of salt, they needed to develop glands that store the salt and then they spit it out of their noses. So that same iguana that you see in the continent that was once the ancestor of these iguanas is completely different. And so it's evolution at work and it's undeniable when you go to Galapagos and you see this. So um, that is one animal. The other one is the, the flightless cormorant. And cormorants you find uh, pretty much everywhere in the world. Any In any of the coastal areas around the world, you'll find them. But what happened in Galapagos is like these cormorants that probably flew to the Galapagos made it their home. And because they did not have any predators in Galapagos, they had no need to fly. They, you know, they got their food from the water. They, they eat fish, small fish. And because there were no predators, they didn't need to fly. So their wings over time atrophied and these birds basically forgot how to fly. Now they're much better swimmers than any cormorant anywhere else in the world because it solely relies on their swimming abilities to survive. But their wings no longer work. So you see these beautiful birds that open their wings and it's just these two little stumps that are, are useless. And then finally, the, the last animal which I've seen once is the vampire finch. So it's a little finch, a bird that also exists in other places in the world. But this bird, because there was no fresh water, it had needed to, to get, you know, liquids into the, its system. So it learned to poke out the feathers from seabirds and suck on their blood to, and that's how it gets its nutrients. So it's a bird that transformed to a vampire, um, for, you know, because of an evolutionary need. So that's how strange uh, and beautiful the creatures are in Galapagos. And that's what makes the island so amazing. Wow. That's, I mean, the, the, the first one you said was a marine iguana. That's what it's called. Yes. I yep. mean, the way and, and, and how, how they adapted, how, you know, what, what, what they, they did, what they needed to do to survive. I guess that's what we would all do. Even, even humans can 
sort of uh, will have to when you have no other choice. That's it. You either die or you adapt. Exactly. And, the, you know, wisdom, Keith, is just an, a perfect example. You know, generations ago, probably our great grandparents or great great grandparents, they they had everybody came out with wisdom teeth. Now the younger generation, some are even born without wisdom teeth, right? Because we don't use them. And it's so it's a very small example of evolution at work. And of course, in Galapagos, we're talking about 4 million years of evolution. So this is, these are the changes that happen over the course of time. Amazing. The more I hear, the more I really, really need to go. Tell me, um, how do people book? Do do you work with tour operators or do people book directly with you? How do people buy a trip with uh, Quasar Expeditions? Both, both. So we work with uh, travel agencies and tour operators from pretty much all over the world. So depending on where you live and how comfortable you may be with booking online, um, most of our guests do prefer to book directly with, um, you know, our team. The advantage of doing that is, you know, you are talking with the owners and operators of the ships. The expectations that we set are absolutely on dot, right? Because we experience this day in and day out and know our product extremely well. And we do a great job of really telling you if the Galapagos is a good fit for you and if Quasar is a good fit for you, because we're, to be completely honest, we're not a great fit for everybody. Some people might, you know, these are luxury cruises, but their perception of luxury might be something more in lines of what they experience in the Mediterranean, where it's all about what happens on on the ship. Here, it's mostly about what happens off the ship, you know, the amazing experience you get to have on the islands and with the animals. So, um, and the best way to to really do that is to talk to someone. So, um, you know, if anybody is interested, for example, they just need to go to our website, quasarex.com, and just talk to one of our expedition designers, and they'll be happy to answer all your questions and, um, you know, and help you understand if the Galapagos and Quasar are right for you. We will put the link to the website in the show notes. When is the best time to go to travel in Galapagos? The best time of the year or the best season? That's a great question. So contrary to many destinations that are seasonal, the Galapagos, because they lie on the equator, they essentially only have two seasons. It's um, you know a dry season and a season where it rains lightly in the highlands. So for most people who visit the Galapagos, because we don't really visit the highlands, you won't feel a difference in terms of like weather or rain or anything like that. Um, about 95% of the wildlife in Galapagos does not migrate. So regardless of the time of year when you go, you'll find all the wildlife there. The only exception of the big 15 animals that people like to see in Galapagos is the waved albatross that is pretty much there all year except you know February through April. And the rest of the year, you can find it there. So as it relates to climate and weather, I would say any time is a good time to go. However, there are certain times of the year that are more favorable, um, for example, in terms of like the snorkeling. From the months of about June to November, the influence of the Humboldt current is a lot stronger. And the Humboldt current, if you know, it brings the nutrient-rich waters from Antarctica all the way up the coast of South America. And so this water that is extremely nutrient rich bathes the archipelago strongly from June to about November. And this gives way to the most spectacular underwater um, encounters. So 
feeding frenzies, large pods of dolphins, whales, um, penguins being really active. That is a highlight of that time of year. We call it the secret season for a reason. And it's because some people tend to think that because uh, there is less demand for Galapagos from September to November, it's a less desirable time to go. But on the contrary, what happens is because the North American market is the main market for Galapagos and September to November is not a popular time of year for North Americans to travel because it it is right after the summer holidays and before Christmas and New Year's. So there is less demand. And sometimes that leads to discounts from agency and people think, oh, because it's discounted, it's a less desirable time of year to go. But on the contrary to anybody listening to this podcast, if you go at that time of year, you will see the most spectacular underwater life, still enjoy plenty of hours of clear skies, the great Galapagos weather, warm waters. Um, it's a fantastic time to go. So in short, any time of year is good. And then there are certain times, you know, that are more favorable in terms of the crowds or, or you know, highlights of historically. Sure. And what is the length of it? Is there different types of tours? Is there different lengths of tours? Yes. In, in Galapagos, you'll find um, cruises that range anywhere from four days to up to 15 days. At Quasar Expeditions, we only offer the eight-day cruises and the 15-day cruises. We believe that eight days is the absolute minimum amount of time required to really see the best of the archipelago. For example, you know, the animals that we talked about earlier, um, the youngest islands in Galapagos on the west, they're still forming today. Volcanic eruptions happening all the time, right? And the oldest islands in the west, they are 4 million years old. So the difference between the eastern and the western islands, the same animal had, you know, millions more years to, to adapt and change. And so the only way to see evolution at work in Galapagos is to take an itinerary that takes you throughout the entire archipelago. And for that, you need a minimum of eight days. Now, for the time privilege and budget privilege travelers, if you go for 15 days, you'll see the absolute best of Galapagos. And because we realize for most people that Galapagos is a once in a lifetime trip, if you can go, you know, for 15 days, I definitely recommend it. You will see every corner and every animal there is to see in Galapagos. Fantastic. Now, you have another passion because you live in Chile and you also um, do trips in Patagonia. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So, you know, when my wife is Chilean and when I met her uh, in Ecuador, I came down um, to visit her in Chile and I took a trip to Patagonia. And obviously having been involved, I was already working in the family business um, and I discovered Patagonia and, and it's incredible how how much potential there was to offer more and better things in Patagonia. There was a, some, the accommodations were basic. Some of the excursions offered were basic. The way to explore was very basic. And so uh, I basically opened, you know, Quasar's uh, Patagonia programs together with a business partner here in Chile. And uh, today we take people in the same sort of safari style approach that we have in the Galapagos, but obviously adapted to Patagonia. Now here, you know, it's it's an overland expedition, so these are not cruises, but essentially the concept remains the same of having, you know, an expert guide take you 
across these beautiful national parks, seeing the wildlife, seeing, you know, the landscapes, doing all the excursions, exploring the ice, um, seeing the pumas, basically immersing yourself in this destination, even getting to know the local traditions, you know, because their Patagonia for a long time was a very important economic um, center for Chile and Argentina with the cattle farming. And that is part of the history of Patagonia. So we don't only immerse you in the natural aspect of it, but also, you know, in the cultural part. So these journeys, they also range anywhere from six to up to 14 days in this part of the world. And we take you to explore these two beautiful national parks that are right next to each other and that have something very different from Galapagos, but equally as beautiful. Charles Darwin actually spent one year in Patagonia before sailing north to the Galapagos in the voyage of the Beagle. So as the man of science, he there he also fell in love with the place. And, you know, once I when I saw it for the first time, I understood why. I can hear when I listen to you that you are you like both places just as much because uh, you talk about them with a lot of passion. And uh, and um, now you said that you studied in the U.S. Where about did you study? Yes, I I graduated from an American school in Ecuador, and then I studied at the University of Notre Dame, which is about an hour south of the city of Chicago in, in the state of Indiana. I studied there for four and a half years, and then I did one semester abroad in, in Rome, which is fantastic. So I learned some Italian there too. But yes, I spent my university years in the United States and Shortly after graduating, I came back and started working at the, you know, the family business. And you enjoyed living in Rome for that year? Oh, yes, absolutely. Did What's you go the... anywhere else in Europe? Did you travel around? I did. I, I traveled quite a bit. You know, this was in the beginning of the 2000s and um, the low cost airlines were already buoyant. So it was extremely cheap. Sometimes we, we would joke it was less expensive to fly to Paris than it was to stay for the weekend, you know, in Rome. And so we had friends or somebody had an acquaintance, so we didn't pay for hotels, but I got to travel all over Europe. Uh, I explored a lot of France, a lot of Germany, um, parts of Switzerland, all of Italy, um, the United Kingdom, um, the Netherlands. So yes, I was fortunate to be able to travel a bit around Europe at the time. And do you have a favorite place in Europe? It's difficult. I know I don't like this question. I always question. make sure I, I I hate the question, but I ask it okay. myself because so many places are beautiful and I think it's very difficult to choose. Yeah. Rome is obviously extremely special for me because I studied there and just the history of the place is so fascinating. You know, we would you know, we were young there, and so we would go out maybe for a party, um, and then walking home in front of the Colosseum, you know, in front of St. Peter's, it's just the majesty of mm -hmm. the, the construction in the city and the history is just fascinating to me, plus amazing food. And then I also had a very special connection with Lugano. I don't know if Lugano. you've been in Switzerland. Yes. Yeah. We, I visited the uh, Lugano when I was living in Rome and it is fantastic because everybody spoke Italian. So the language was extremely easy. Of course, everybody in Switzerland also speaks English. Um, but language was not a problem. The food was still fantastic, you know, um, but it was so 
organized and coming from Italy, where it was pretty chaotic, at least when I was there, there were strikes all the time. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And then it just happened that a few years ago, the Adventure Travel Trade Association had a trade show there. And uh, I got to go back after many years, uh, still pleasantly surprised at how beautiful um, the place is, how tranquil it is right at the edge of the lake, right? I would say those are yeah. some of my favorite places. I do agree with there. Rome, though. I mean, no matter what a mess it is sometimes, and, you know, especially in the summer when it's really, really busy, but it's such a, this, this magical, as you say, when you walk around or when you walk home from dinner, when the lights are on and when it, it is, it is very, very beautiful in Rome. I agree yeah. with you. And you just reminded, I had, I had made a note, but I was going to forget because you mentioned the Adventure Travel Trade Association because you're involved in that. What is that? Yes. So the ATTA is the, it's the largest congregation of adventure tour operators. Um, and so it's an association where members, um, from all over the world unite under this umbrella that is the ATTA. Um, you basically, you know, pay a membership to be part of this community, but you get to interact, um, share information, do webinars, they host events. And, and it's basically a way to connect and boost the adventure travel segment from all over the world. And so they host a summit, the Adventure Travel World Summit every year in a different city, in different parts of the world. Um, one, you know, that year it was in Lugano, last year it was in Hokkaido in Japan. Uh, next year it's going to be in Panama. So we it's really interesting. We get to travel the world and, and get together with this fantastic community to, to share ideas um, and and really make the the adventure travel tourism sector better because it employs one in every 11 people in the world are directly or indirectly employed by the adventure travel tourism sector. So it's huge. Wow. Wow. Because now while, while you were talking, I was thinking, I mean, adventure travel is many things. It's not just cruising in Galapagos. It can be all sorts of hiking tours or, or, you know, all sorts, whatever has to do with adventure. And adventure is a very big word, really. Yeah. <clears throat> the members from the ATTA, you have everything from, from cruise companies to day tour operators, rafting companies, mountain mm -hmm. biking companies, yeah. um, you name it. It's yeah. a huge word. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. I was just now, you mentioned the word Zoom, and Zoom always reminds me of COVID, the times of, you know, when we were all locked up. What did you do? It must, it must have been very difficult because it's not, it's not, you cannot go online and travel suddenly. What, what must have been quite a hard time for, for Quasar and, and, uh, all the yes. travel business. Yes. It was an extremely, extremely tough time. We probably, you know, our industry, the fitness industry, um, and probably can think of only a handful of others that were so deeply affected by COVID, you know, from one day to the next. I remember we were in a meeting in Ecuador with our the team that we were actually in training workshops. You know, COVID was obviously buzzing, you know, that the issue, and we heard that Ecuador might close its borders. And uh, we were the, we couldn't risk getting having people be stuck in Ecuador. So we were the first cruise company to actually cancel that week's cruise, bring people to port and get them out of Ecuador. Um, in the industry, they said we were causing an unnecessary panic. 
But two days later, the government shut down the borders mm -hmm. and we were the only company that had, you know, evacuated people while, while there were still flights, while there was no chaos. So I think from the beginning, we dealt with COVID in the best way possible, you know, regarding the, the circumstances, but it was a horrible time, you know, for Galapagos was closed. It was only officially closed for about six months before the government opened it for tourism again, but they opened Galapagos in, I believe it was July or August of 2020. So as you can imagine, nobody was traveling at that time. Oh. The first vaccines only started to yeah. appear, I believe like in December. Yeah. So the first cruise that we actually operated, even though the Galapagos were open in August was in December. So for about eight months, we were completely closed not a single passenger, no business. We had to let go of about 70% of our employees uh, with the promise, obviously, that as soon as things got better, we would rehire them. And we did, thankfully. But Chile was actually closed for almost two years. So here it was, things were bad. Um, at one point we said, uh, I remember sitting down with their, my business partner and saying, if Chile doesn't reopen by December, we will shut down the Quasar's branch in Patagonia and tourism reopened in November. So we mm. were 30 days away from <laughs> not making it. it. So it was tough, but that resilience and how um, creative we got in the process, how lean we got as an organization, I think we came out better on the other side. Um, we're a better company for it as difficult as that, you know, the times were. Yeah. Um, I think we are a better company for it. Well, there is two sides to every story, isn't there? I actually landed in Buenos Aires on the 12th of March. I was, my my daughter was traveling in South America and I went to meet her. And um, we went on a walking tour on the 13th. And I was told that on the 16th, the country was going to close down. So I had to escape and I had to find a flight. And I spent the rest of the walking tour trying to call Swiss airlines, which was hard. Anyway, I made it out. I made it out. I made it to Switzerland and I finally made it to Cyprus. And I was one of the first people who was quarantined for two weeks in a hotel here in the on the island when I arrived. It was crazy times. I mean, when we look back now, we didn't know what was going to happen. We thought we were all going to die. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I, I remember, you know, my, my daughter was in, she was, you know, in, in preschool and I, as I was working, you know, one floor above, I would hear the, you know, the songs and the things that they were doing in class. And when I hear those songs today, there's a feeling that up again and it was anxiety total anxiety i realize this now that total uncertainty first of all personal survival right were we gonna survive this were we gonna die i unfortunately had um relatives and friends you know pass away because of COVID. so it was real nothing mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. i have lived uh through has been this sort of real i have not lived through a war for example but this was as real as it got. And so you have that part and then the economic well-being, you know, in the industry that I was in trying also to see if I, if I need to reinvent myself and I'm talking about the only thing I've lived, done, breathed in my adult years is tourism. Yeah. Can I do something else? Um, but we stuck with it and 
here we are, you know, now in a beautiful travel podcast. Whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger, doesn't it? And we actually are coming to the end of this podcast. I have one last question. Where does the DS family go on holidays? That's a great question. Uh, Well, now when we go as a family, because um, my kids are very young and so are my brothers, I have two brothers who are also in the business. Our, Our kids are very young. So it's normally a relaxing beach holiday where, you know, the the kids and the adults will have a nice time. But when we were younger, you know, when we didn't have kids and we traveled as a family, if anywhere where there was adventure, you know, where mm-hmm. there's an African safari, um, Antarctica, we had the benefit that, you know, my parents would exchange cabins, yeah. you know, cabin in Galapagos yeah. for a cabin yeah. in, in Antarctica. And so we we're really um, lucky to be able to to go there. So I've been to places like Hawaii, Alaska, Antarctica, Africa, and then of course, you know, visiting places in Europe and then Southeast Asia for me, on mainly on the cultural perspective is one of the most fascinating places in the world too. As I am getting a little envious here, I think we should end this podcast episode. <laughs> Thank you so much for spending time and thank you so much for being on Most Memorable Journeys, Fernando Diaz. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. Um, If you're ever interested in going to Galapagos, you know, you have my contact information. It's a place that everybody, you know, has to visit once in their life. It's truly life-changing. I will be there. If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes.